Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. So, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, you would know that we have been in a short series through the book of Zephaniah. I've got the privilege of preaching this entire book to you all, um, and it is a, uh, it's an interesting one, right? We've going to talk a lot about judgment in the last couple weeks and what God takes seriously about our sin, how he is um, all against pride, how he is against fact that we are not being a part of restoring the world as we've been called to be. And we've talked also about how he has taken drastic measures in his own hands um, to, to make this world right, particularly through Jesus. And we're going to continue talking about that this morning, except today we're not going to be talking so much about judgment. Um, this last part of Zephaniah is a really encouraging um, passage. It comes especially, becomes especially encouraging in light of what's come before. Before we read it, though, um, I want to ask you a question. Are you tired this morning? Are you tired? I'm tired. I'm really tired. Um, I was made aware of this recently, that often when people ask me how I'm doing, and I know it's not just the how are you, I'm fine. If I'm actually going to give an honest answer, I regularly will find myself saying, I'm tired. I'm tired. Sometimes I'll say something different like I'm busy, but really just all I mean is that I'm tired and I've got a lot to do. Tired, I'm busy. I've actually heard this from some of you as well as I've talked to you. I've asked you how you're doing and and not so many words. You've basically told me, I'm tired. Why are we tired? I think sometimes um, we just attribute it to various things in our life, right? I'm not getting enough sleep. My kids are crazy. Um, My work is so busy, and they're making me work long hours. I've got these medical issues that keep me never having enough energy. I'm old. I feel old. Yeah, there's there's those kinds of things. Those things definitely make us feel tired. Sometimes I think it's something more. Like a couple weeks ago, my wife went out of town for a couple weeks with my kids. So I was thinking, oh yeah, two weeks alone in the house. I can sleep in as late as I want. I can. Um, I don't have to be woken up at five o'clock in the morning by my son who likes to wake up. Then you know, I get some rest. I'm not going to be tired. But you know what? I felt the entire time they were gone. I felt I was. I felt tired. I felt tired, which makes me think, like, there's got to be something deeper to our tiredness, something that goes beyond just our, our circumstances and the busyness of our life and our lack of sleep. What are you tired by? Are you tired by the world, the broken world we live in? Are you tired of it? You tired of an endless news cycle that just constantly tells you about tragedies next door or tragedies on the other side of the world? It's always bad news to report. 
tired of corruption, the way it affects society, people not looking out for the good of others? Are you tired of your heroes, the people you respect even, being exposed as also corrupt or scandal? Are you tired of constant conflict in the society, constant polarization on every single issue that comes across our world? Or maybe not even just in society at large, but you're tired of the conflict and polarization within your own family. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. You're tired of uh, maybe even the church isn't exactly what you want it to be. You're tired of that not even being the respite it should be. Maybe you're tired of yourself this morning. You're just tired of who you are. Maybe not everything, but maybe you're just tired of um, the anxiety and depression that you live with every day. You're stuck inside of a body that constantly feels uptight, anxious, shameful, depressed. Tired of your own bad decisions you know you keep making and the things you keep doing because you think they're going to bring you joy and they don't. You're tired of the things, your habitual sins, those sins you keep going to over and over again even though they know, they, you know they leave you feeling rotten. You're tired of it. Tired of your own self-talk. Tired of your own wandering heart that isn't focused on what's good for you and focused on the Lord. One of the words we often use to express our tiredness, which is an interesting word when you think about it, is exhausted. I'm exhausted. Exhausted literally means to be spent, to be used up, to have your resources used up. So if this morning you're coming in as exhausted people, exhausted by all these things and more, then this is a good sermon for you because God likes it when we realize we're used up. When we don't have control of our lives, when we know that the only possible way that any of this is going to be fixed is through an act of God. And that means this passage is going to be really encouraging to us. Um, so let's read this passage, which is particularly encouraging for the exhausted. Verse 9, starting chapter 3, verse 9, and then we'll read till verse 20. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and the humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, daughter of Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. 
In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppress you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We're thankful that you have a plan, that your hope, that our hope is in the future, a day when you will restore things. We're tired, Lord. We come to you tired. We come to you exhausted. We came to you, come to you spent. But Lord, we ask that you would fill us and you would give us rest. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage teaches us that there is a day coming. That day we know is the day when Jesus returns. When that day comes, the day of the Lord, the weary can be excited about it. And why is that? Because God is coming to restore all things, to make things right, to make things new. On that day, those of us who know Jesus, those of us who are in Christ, are going to receive two things according to this passage, two things that hopefully will give rest to our weary souls as we hope for them. One, it gives us God's purification, and two, it gives us God's presence. And those are our two points this morning for those of you who are taking notes. God's purification and God's presence. Let's look at God's purification in this passage. Essentially, what do we need? If we're tired of ourselves, what do we need? We need God to do the miraculous work of fixing the broken things about us. Fixing broken things as an individual and a communal ideal here in uh, Zephaniah chapter 3, looking at the individual, we see that God purifies our lips. God purifies our lips. Verse 9, he says, Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. Verse 13, they will do no wrong, they will tell no lies, a deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. What does it mean when it says they will purify our lips? A lot of commentators believe that Zephaniah is directly referencing the Tower of Babel. Perhaps you know this story, a story from Genesis chapter 11, I believe. Genesis chapter 11, when... Um, basically, all of the people of God, sorry, all the people that God has created after the flood, they decide that they're going to get together and build a city, a city that won't proclaim God's glory, but a city that will proclaim their glory. So what does God do? He confuses their lips, right? He confuses their tongues. They speak different languages. They speak so they cannot communicate as well. There's kind of a double, there's an idea here of, of God changing their lips so that they will call on the name of the Lord. So he's reverencing power of the Babel, the part of Babel, where these people were all about praising themselves. So really more than just their lips, he's talking about he's purifying their hearts. So their hearts, out of their hearts, springs this praise of God and God alone. They will no longer seek their own glory. They will no longer seek 
um, their own selfish desires, that they will seek to give glory to God and therefore love their neighbor as well. This is a reversal of Babel on an individual level. That's good news for us. That's good news for us because that means there's a day coming when the parts of our heart that we can see so clearly that long for bad things for us, that long to destroy us, that long to worship things other than God and look for our satisfaction and our joy there, those parts will be removed from us. They'll be burned away. There's a future hope of actually having a purified heart that longs for God and God alone, that only seeks good things for itself. That's encouraging. If you're tired of yourself, this day is coming. But this this reversal of Babel isn't just individual in terms of our hearts being focused on God. It's also communal. Because why did God mess up the the lips of the people in Babel is because they were working together in order to bring their glory to the earth, which is another way of saying they were working together to destroy the world. By pushing the world farther and farther away from God, they were actually seeking to build themselves up at the expense of God's creation because the only hope, as we've talked about in previous sermons, for goodness is God himself They're pushing it away. Now, here's the cool thing. If our individual hearts in the future are going to be restored and purified, the good news is that also is going to affect the way we relate to one another. The community is also purified. Verse 9, then I will purify the lips of the peoples. He's actually talking about people from all kinds of nations. All these people that have been spread out across the land, kind of, using the imagery of Babel, people being spread out, will come back together, right? That all may call on the name of the Lord. No longer are they focused on their own hearts. They're now focused together as a whole. All of their desires are focused on the God of the universe. And they will serve him shoulder to shoulder, is what verse 9 says. What we're talking about here is that God gives them a mission together. Everyone is facing the same direction. On that day, Jerusalem, you will not be put to shame. This is verse 11 and following. For all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and the humble. Imagine a world where everyone is humble. Everyone is seeking the good of one another and the glory of God. Their hearts aren't twisted toward themselves. Imagine the harmony that would be created in such a world from human to human, from person to person, and between person and God. What does that mean? That means an end of injustice. If you're tired this morning of injustice, I hear this a lot as I'm talking to you guys. Maybe not all of you experience this on a daily basis, But some of you do, just the injustice of this world, the effects of corruption on you, the effects of people taking advantage of you. And even if you don't experience that on a daily basis, I'm positive that you experience the the brokenness of relationship between you and your family members, between you and your friends, between you and others. Broken relationships. 
Some of you also are just tired of the ways that you see in yourself self-destructive behaviors that break your relationships. You keep breaking your own relationships, and you see that. You're tired of it. You're tired of loneliness, maybe. Just lonely, not connected to anyone. Here's the good news. There's a day coming when the community, all people on earth will be in community with one another and it will be nothing but beautiful. Your relationships will be perfect. They will work the way they're supposed to be. Everyone will be selfless, including you, and focus on the good of others. This is a day that is coming, and of course, you know, that just sounds like wishful thinking, except for the fact that we have a God who's going to make it happen. That's who we have. We have a God who cares enough about this world. And we don't just need we don't just have a God who's interested in purification. We have a God who is interested in living with us, who wants to spend eternity with us. So that's also where we see we have not just God's purification, but we have God's presence. Um, There's a quote, um, a very famous quote, um, which is often taken out of context for when it was actually said by Louis XV of France. He said in French, which, forgive my French, um, après moi le déluge, après moi le déluge, which means essentially after me comes the floods, after me comes the deluge. Um, And... uh, he used it to refer to something particular about Haley's comment. It was just going to show in, like, what he thought was going to happen with the world. But it's been used ever since kind of to reference his reign as the king. He kind of lived the high life. He was the last like normal king of France. Um, he got to live in royalty. He got to live with privilege. He got to live as if there was no tomorrow because during the reign of his son began the French Revolution which meant the end of the monarchy, a complete and total change to the entire society of France. God isn't like that. God doesn't live frivolously like Louis XV and basically say, ah, after me, we'll just wipe it all away. After me, we'll wipe it all away. It's actually the opposite with God. God says, after the deluge, me. After the hardship, after the struggle, after judgment, comes my presence. After purification, comes my presence with my people. After the deluge, me. God wants to live with us. He wants to bring his presence to live with us. And on that day, we will experience it in full. And because of that, we will experience complete safety and complete the light. God gives us his safety through his presence. See in verse 15 and following, the Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion, do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. God is with us. God will be with us on that day, and we will feel his presence in full. Although right now, God is with us. We know that. God is is present with us even in this very moment. But his presence isn't completely felt, right? It's not completely felt. We don't always experience God's presence. Even if it's true, we don't experience it. 
But here's the truth. In that coming day, when Jesus returns and lives with his people, we will experience it. There will never be any need for faith anymore. Faith is only something for people who can't see. We'll have him in front of us. We will experience the fullness of his presence with us. And because the fullness of his presence is with us, you know what? It says that he has turned back our enemy so you will not fear any more harm. Sin is our enemy. Our sin will be turned away. And so sin can never enter into the world again. We cannot screw it up. We cannot mess it up. God keeps our enemy at bay. It also means when you can feel the, uh, the, the presence of God, when it's tangible, guess what's going to disappear? Anxiety, depression, the thing, the, the, those feelings that you have when you feel like things are out of control, when you feel like um, you're worried that something bad is going to happen, all those, those, those feelings of hatred of yourself, all of those things are going to disappear because God's presence is with you. It's very tangible. You will never, ever doubt that you're safe and that you're okay and that you have God's love with you. You will never doubt it. That's the good news of that coming day. But not also, not only will you have safety, you'll also have God's delight. This is probably the most famous verse in the book of Zephaniah. Chapter 3, verse 17. It says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. And listen to this. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. He will no longer rebuke you. This whole first, over two-thirds of this book is about God's rebuke. It's about God's rebuke of his people particularly and their pride and their arrogance and their assumption of his, his favor when they didn't deserve it and their inability to fulfill the mission that God had given them. And God is, talk, is rebuking them and calling them to repentance. But in that day in the future, all of those of us who are in Christ, God will delight over us. The rebuke is gone. It's not, okay, I love you, but you know, you've not been a very good boy. It's not that. It's delight. It's rejoicing over you. A lot of times when the Bible talks about God's love for his people, it uses the word hesed, which is a Hebrew word meaning unfailing love. He keeps his promises. He's he's very consistent with his people and always um, has their best in mind. And that's definitely true here. But we see a different word at play. And that's the word of delight. This love that is so excited and likes the person so much that it can't help but like expressing it. And in this case, in song. God delights over you. It's the same kind of word that it uses when Jacob meets his beloved wife, Rachel. He delights in her. It's the same word that's used when uh, Jonathan and David are like the closest of friends who just love each other so much as deep, deep friends, the deepest friends we see, um, some of the deepest friends we see in the Bible. This delight over them, this delight that says, I can't help 
but sing, I'm so delighted in you. That is the way God feels about us. And in that day to come, we will experience that fully. There will be no self-doubt. There will be no shame because we will have the full delight of our God. We'll feel it and experience it. It'll be tangible. And that's a promise for all of those of us who are in Jesus. And that's, who it's, and that's the key, right? That's, it's all because of who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who makes all of this possible. Verse 15 says, The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. How has he taken away your punishment? Well, by giving it to Jesus. Of course, this whole book's about judgment because there needed to be judgment for the failures that we have had for our sin, for the ways that we have rebelled against God. God is a just God. But instead of giving it to us, he gives it to Jesus. He pours it on Jesus. So those of us who trust in him can be assured that this day is coming. What did Jesus accomplish? Well, perhaps you know that while Jesus was on the cross, in the moment he died, the curtain of the temple split in two. What did the curtain do? The curtain was what separated man from the presence of God. You see, without Jesus, being in the presence of God would destroy us because God would consume our unholiness with his holiness. We couldn't exist in his presence. But because of what Jesus has done by applying his righteousness to us, we can now enter into the presence of God. Now God can live with us. And because Jesus went to the cross and was willing to do that, we can actually see God's delight in us, that he wanted to spend eternity with us so bad that he was willing to die so that we could be made right with him. But he didn't stay dead. He rose to life. And in his resurrection, he begins the reign of life in this world that will be completed in that day to come when life will reign over all. But before that, sin was reigning. Our sin was reigning in this world, but God, through his son, for the raising his son from the dead, makes it true that life is now germinating. Good now germinates in our hearts because of Christ's resurrection. God is renewing our hearts, purifying our hearts even now. And it actually, his resurrection assures that that one day will come when life will when Jesus, by his work, has guaranteed this future for us who trust in him. Now, here's the thing. These things are not just true in the future. These things are actually true now. We don't fully experience them. We don't fully um, understand them now, but they are true Even now, God is, by the power of his Holy Spirit, if you are in Jesus, he is chiseling away at your heart and chipping away the parts of your heart that are divided from the Lord. He is turning you towards God. He is changing your will. He is making you desire what is good and right and holy and pure. He's already starting that process. It's not complete yet. And his presence is actually with you. He lives in your heart. He is present with you. He is actually even delighting in you right now. Even when you are in sin, 
If you're in Jesus this morning, even when you're in sin, even when you're struggling with that habitual sin for the umpteenth time, God is delighting in you because of Jesus. He's rejoicing over you with singing because you're his, and he adores you. That is the truth of the gospel. But, I've said this before, and I want to uh, make it clear. There is zero promise in the Bible, zero promise in the Bible, that in this lifetime you will experience the fullness of God's presence or the fullness of God's purification. There is no promise that you will feel close to God every day. There is no promise that you will feel um, complete, like your will is completely torn to God and is not divided. Yeah, you'll see growth. You'll see God change you and move you. And, and yeah, that's exciting when you see that. But you cannot expect perfection in this life. There's a myth that says that the Amish, um, a community of, um, of, of Christians in the U.S., they build their own houses there's a myth, I think it's a myth, it might be true, um, that the Amish, whenever they build a house, they're really amazing woodworkers, they're, they're fantastic um, at, at, at carving things well, of doing things almost to perfection, but the myth says that they will always, when they build a house, leave at least one board crooked on purpose. Leave one board imperfect, and the rest a perfect house. And why do they do that? They do that to remind themselves that there is nothing perfect this side of the crucifixion. There's nothing perfect. Absolutely, this church, especially the church, God's community here, should be a picture of God's presence in this world. Should be a picture of the purifying work of God as he shapes his people to have a heart that wants him. We should be a picture of that. Our church should strive to be a picture of that future day. But this side of eternity, we need to look at our exhaustion. We need to look at the things about the world that, that aren't the way they should be and think of them as the crooked boards of that house. The things that remind us that this world is not where our hope lies. Our hope lies in the restored world of God where our presence or the presence of God will be fully felt. We look forward to that day. We're excited about it. We find our hope in it. We let that hope motivate us and encourage weary souls even now as we know that although our hope is not here, we do have a hope and it is secure because of Jesus. May we long for his purification of our hearts and may we long for his presence to be with us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for um, your work. We thank you that there is one day we can look forward to when all will be made right, all that is sad will come untrue. We pray, Lord, that you would um, already be showing us the work that you're doing in our hearts um, and the work that you're doing um, uh, in this world. Show us pictures of your work. But Lord, help us to just trust in you and to look forward to that future day. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.